If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. All right, welcome to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. I have three wonderful guests with me today. I'm so excited for this full house and all these voices that are going to be joining me on the podcast today. I'd like to welcome Alicia Karras and Rachel to the podcast. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Yay, everyone's here. Okay, so um, we're talking about what life has been like for graduate students in the time of COVID and what that transition looks like moving from um, graduate school, well, first surviving graduate school, (laughs) and moving into the field and getting your CF in the medical um, setting. So I'm delighted to have uh, three voices that can share about their different experiences and different um, places they are in their lives, in their career, and in their schooling. So this is great. Let's start with Alicia. Go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about you, please. All right. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Alicia Smalls, and I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. Um, I'm currently in graduate school in my final year of my SOP program. So yay, (laughs) yay for that. I'm a mom of one and (laughs) he is, um, what actually inspired me to pursue speech language pathology. And after I finished my graduate program for my master's, I'm planning on, um, going after my PhD in neuroscience with hopes to combining um, those two paths together and, you know, one day owning my own research hospital one day. All right. Okay. So, you know, starting out very, very small and, you know, small dreams. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome, Alicia. Yes. Do all those things succeed. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Now I'm like, well, gosh, I got to get on. <laughs> I can't wait to someday look up an article and it'll have your name. I'll be like, oh, I know her. (laughs) Um, I'm Karis and I'm from the D.C. area and went to undergrad in Virginia at James Madison University and then right into grad school at UNC Greensboro, where I'm a second year grad student now. So I'll graduate in May. Um, And I do feel very lucky to have had medical placements during as a graduate student during a pandemic um and that is where I hope to be is somewhere working in rehab in a medical setting um and then a fun little fact about me is I played water polo in college (laughs) wow wow All right. I'm Rachel Mooneyham. I got my bachelor's degree in Spanish from Earlham College in 2009. And then I lived in Mexico for a couple years. I taught English to adults and children there. And then I also worked um, in various parts of Central North Carolina, where I'm from, 
as a bilingual research assistant, <clears throat> a Spanish interpreter in immigration law, and a bilingual health public health educator um, before pursuing my master's in speech pathology at UNCG, um, where Karis and I overlapped a little bit. <laughs> um, I started that pursuit in 2017. I followed a modified plan of study because I had a baby uh, my first semester of graduate school, which I do not recommend. <laughs> Love her, but by all means, if you can uh, plan your life so that you finish school and establish your career before having a child, <laughs> do it. Um, and I graduated in December of 2020, so just a couple months ago, and I am currently working um, in a for a major medical system um, in this region in a pediatric outpatient setting which i started in january awesome very good all right i love like i mentioned at the beginning this wide variety of experiences skills and paths in and out of grad school so this is great i'm really excited okay so we're just going to dive right in and go straight into our first topic and it's navigating the world of PPE, personal protective equipment, in the time of COVID. So schools were closing, everything was moving online, and placements were being, um, well, they ended. Like I had a student in March, and then like I got a text message one evening and was like, your student can't come back. <laughs> like that's the end. Them's the breaks, right? So um, as they've been allowed to come back in practice, um, it's kind of been like, okay, so who's going to provide PPE and what does that look like? So we're just going to kind of keep our alphabetical order and we'll start with Alicia to talk about what your experience has been like with PPE in your externships. Um, so, so far in my externships, we provide our own selves without PPE when, before we enter the building. So like once we um, enter the building, we, um, we are switched out to what they have there available for us. And um, so it's like kind of half and half, half, you know, we provide and half they provide. So that's been my experience thus far. Okay. So they're expecting you to, for example, wear a mask entering the building, and then you take that off and wear a mask that they provide for the rest of the day. Yeah, right. We have mask and you have to have a mask and a shield. So uh, a regular mask, a surgical mask and a shield upon entry into the building. And then you get your temp check, you sanitize your hand, you switch out for a new clean mask. And then you're able to go back to see your patients. Do they want you to continue to wear the shield that you wore into work or do they provide you with other eye protection? No, we wear the same shield. Okay. But that shield, for example, yeah. they wanted you to bring. They did not provide a shield, but they made it a requirement that you wear a shield. That's correct. Oh, snap. That's correct. Okay. But all right. But okay. So they're providing the mask, but not the shield, but they're making it a requirement to wear the shield. All right. Okay, I got feelings about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but let's move on. Before we do, is there anything else that you wanted to add about your PPE experience um, in your placements before we go on to Paris? Um, also, we are 
we get fit tested. So I'll be fit tested next week. Um, I'm not sure if everybody is aware what uh fit testing is. So basically it's um you're tested for your N95 respirator that you're gonna wear when you see COVID patients. And there's two sizes to the um respirator. You know, either you're the smaller, either the regular size. If you are you're fit tested, they spray like an aerosol in the mask to make sure that, you know, you, you can't taste the the aerosol. If you do, that means you're not, you know, fit tested to see the patients. So that's what fit testing is. But they do provide those, Matt. Yeah. Good. Good. Whew. <laughs> All right. And Karis? Um, so I was doing teletherapy from March to July. So I didn't have to worry about PPE there. It's a lot of staring at a screen, but no PPE. And then in August, I was in a hospital where I did part outpatient and part acute. Um, and those had different PPE requirements. So it was primarily a surgical mask that only they provided in outpatient and then an N95 in acute. And there, there was, um, I had to sort of advocate and help coordinate who was going to provide that because the hospitals were saying the school was, the school was saying the hospital was. Um, I was recommended to buy my own goggle glasses. So I did that um, and we bought like containers for our N95s so that they could be reused. And I know that a lot of this isn't just too for graduate students. I know during that entire period, this is anybody working in anywhere, but especially the health field. And it was changing a lot as um, whether it was CDC recommendations changed or AGP protocols changed. And um, so even while I was there, several things changed based off of new recommendations that came up. But that was primarily how it was at that hospital. And then starting in January, I was in a different hospital um, in outpatient that's much more specialized. And so in each specialization, like in neuro, we'll just wear the surgical mask, but in voice, they'll wear more protection. So maybe an N95 or K95, um, swallowing, dysphagia, head and neck cancer, there's more of that. And then there's also different protocols for what our patients could wear. So some patients don't have the oral facial structure to wear a normal mask. And so you have to be creative. Or if you're working on swallowing, they're not wearing a mask. And if you're working on swallowing and cognition and language, trying to have them take it on and off is okay for some patients and definitely not a good use of time for other patients. So um, there were different protocols there too. And within different supervisors I had. So it was just being flexible to what you were told when you walked into a new setting. And then also um, I tried to stay educated on my own about, you know, what would keep me safe um, and advocating also for myself when I needed to about, oh, well, I would feel more comfortable with this or I'm going to get my, by my own this. I'm going to ask the patient to maybe sit a little farther away when we do this activity. Or That's good. Like that. I really like hearing that. And I think it's an important point to um, emphasize that um, students going into their externships really need to feel confident and comfortable advocating for themselves if they ever, for one iota of a minute, feel like they're going to be placed in an unsafe position. 
And that includes not having access to adequate PPE. Like there is never any harm in speaking up for yourself and saying, like you just did, Karis, I would feel more comfortable with XYZ in place. And if you get pushback on that, then that tells you a lot, right? Then maybe you just need to walk away from that entire situation because clearly if they can't make you feel safe in that environment, then that's a red flag that could indicate other potential, even bigger red flags in other places. So that's awesome. I love hearing about students getting out there and advocating. So good. <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes that's difficult with the masks because there was new information. And so no one knows a hundred percent for sure about what you're, what you're talking about necessarily. But I think that that's part of the advocating and just in clinical judgment that you might not know something a hundred percent for sure. And I think a lot of times I've thought, oh, well, I might be wrong, but you kind of just do your best with what you have. Um, and it, my supervisors were all very good with adapting also as needed. And listening good, to good. my opinions. I feel really fortunate that my workplace, um, they, they established really well-known, here's what we expect you to wear when you're interacting with patients. And then they came back and modified that, you know, always things are changing. We're getting new information. They're like, you need to be wearing this level of PPE all the time while you're on hospital grounds. And then they said, if you need to elevate that, if you need to increase your PPE levels, you are welcome to do that as well. If you feel like you would feel safer in your interactions by wearing, for example, an N95 all day long, and it's maybe not required for your level of care, that's fine. We will provide that for you. So I really appreciated that for our hospital. And now I'm seeing that that may not be necessarily the norm. So, wow. <laughs> All right. Rachel. So I was um, doing kind of a dual internship in March 2020 when COVID hit. So I was four days a week at a skilled nursing facility and one day a week um, in an elementary school. So skilled nursing facility came to a halt. I never went back before the semester was over. Um, and then the school that I was in, we just transitioned to telehealth as best, or I'm sorry, tele therapy <laughs> as best we could, um, that there was quite a delay. Um, that was, a, but anyways, they did the best they could. And then my summer internship um, was through a private practice. Part of the caseload um, was teletherapy. Some was in home. Um, when we went into homes, we wore a face shield with some, a mask with others. Um, that was kind of my first like experience during the pandemic of like, oh, I've like got children crawling on my lap and I'm wearing a face shield. I feel like there's just a lot of, you know, opportunity here for aerosol germs <laughs> to fly around to my face. Um, so in that internship, I kind of like wanted the mask, you know, as much as possible if it was children who had our tickles or of course um, swallowing. We just had, I think I just had one um, swallowing patient, but um, we would wear the shield with them, but I felt a little uneasy about it. Didn't say anything. Um, so that was a very poor example of self-advocacy. But um, with that internship there, I had this 
kind of a similar experience as Kira's where it was like, who's going to give me a face shield? Is the private practice going to provide that or the university? And the university ended up um, being the one to provide that. And I used my own mask. Um, and then my fall 2020 externship was at an adult outpatient center where they had kind of figured out their own system. My supervisor um, had a partition on her table, you know, in the room where she saw patients. And she pretty much with all of her patients, you know, we all wore masks into the room. And once we were there, we switched from a mask to a face shield. Um, because I know, Leanne, you mentioned some of your patients are hard of hearing. <laughs> That's really challenging with a mask. We had a lot of those um, in that setting. And I even had some um, some people complain about the glare on the partition, like the light glare with the face shield. And my hard of hearing patients were like, I can't, you know, still can't see your mouth. <laughs> so that was tough. Um, and then now in my clinical fellowship experience, I've got, I'm with children and I hate doing speech therapy, wearing a mask with children, <laughs> whether they are doing our tick or language. Um, you know, if it's our tick, I've really made it a priority to ask parents, are you comfortable with me using a face shield so that your child can see my mouth? Some have fragile medical conditions, um, you know, that make them more vulnerable. So it's a, just an, on an individual basis. And with my kids with language goals, I'm getting really frustrated um, wearing a mask with them because they're getting this like muffled language model from me and they're missing half of my face when I'm providing feedback. So they're missing out on so many, you know, visual cues. I feel like I'm straining my own voice because I'm speaking louder um, and giving that really exaggerated, you know, um, positive feedback when they nail a language target. So I'm starting to, with some parents um, with children, you know, early intervention, ask, is it okay if I wear a face shield with your child? <laughs> yeah, I think these have given really good examples of all the different levels of um, stringency at the different levels of care and then how we have to make um, changes to those. And essentially, we're sacrificing certain levels of safety to make those accommodations to be effective therapists. And I think that that says a lot. And that's almost like highly dangerous. But then it's like, how do we do our job otherwise? Like everything we do literally has to do with your mouth. Like <laughs> it's wild. Okay. So um, we're going to move on to our next topic now um, the changing clinical requirements in graduate school, um, for example, like the hours, getting those contact hours with patients and clients. Um, what were the standards when it started and how did they change? And to spice things up, we're going to go in reverse alphabetical order. So we'll start with Rachel today. All right. So I don't remember, gosh, I was just in a panic all throughout graduate school about um, my clinical hours because I was doing this modified plan of study. I was kind of on, you know, I don't know, my clinical side of my program was accelerated because of the time that, um, you know, I didn't do clinics when my daughter was born. 
So I was very fortunate that I had just a champion faculty member um, who kind of pushed for me all along to get those hours. Um, she was our, I guess, our externship coordinator. Um, and she, you know, at the time that COVID hit and they changed, um, I think they reduced or like allowed for more hours to be obtained via virtual lectures, um, STEMI case, and also kind of, did they do away with the 20s? I can't remember the details, but, or not, or kind of like you could get your hours in any- Yeah, you just um, had to get the total hour number and not necessarily right. in- Not in all the right. different sections. So um, I actually met my 20s <laughs> despite um, the changes in that. Yeah, I was happy about it. Um, but yeah, I definitely, when I got kicked out of the sniff last March, I was like, oh my God, am I going to graduate in December as planned? Cause I, um, you know, because of the timing of my, having my child, I ended up taking, I ended up borrowing like 10 to $15,000 more in student loans than I had planned to because of paying for childcare and, um, you know, a, two extra semesters of tuition. So I was like in a financial crisis needing to graduate, you know, on time. Um, so yeah, I was, I felt very fortunate to get the placements that I did, get my, meet my 20s. I more than fulfilled um, my hours um, that were required to graduate. So. And congratulations. I have to say, watching Rachel do it all before me at UNCG was inspiring because <laughs> you could see her do it just like a little half step ahead. Oh, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, the 20s went away. We did more simu case, which is the virtual learning um, that Rachel talked about. I think one thing that changed for me, it wasn't a clinical requirement, but we had a research requirement. And so I had um, like for our program as opposed to for ASHA. And so I had written an IRB with my research partner and we gotten everything ready and it was on psychosocial impacts of care partners. Um, and then, you know, when COVID happened, that impacts psychosocial factors a lot. So what we were going to be initially targeting, I thought if we really want to look at psychosocial factors, it's a lot more that's going into that. Um, and we were going to be doing in-person groups. And then we looked at, would we do teletherapy groups? So we changed our research plan entirely. So that was just one little thing that also changed um, my side, my little plan. Mm -hmm. life. Excellent. Good. Thanks for sharing those. I'll say too, um, I did that uh, research requirement a semester before Kira's and um we had so we i was presenting my partner for research was in the cohort i entered with who was graduating in may 2020 so i presented with her um in that like heavy initial pandemic semester um and we had pretty poor participation in our research study um so i felt like i was disappointed because you know we had worked really hard on that and we presented what we could you know with the the participation that we had but um and our our mentor for the project was very generous with you know um kind of making allowances for that but that it you know you do you work really hard on these projects you want something to come of it and it's disappointing um you know when participation is compromised by mm -hmm. the global pandemic and alicia anything to add on this topic um no just similar to the ladies we obtain our our SMU case um 
when it was time for us to approach our school offsite, what I loved about our offsite coordinator is how she advocated for us and um, basically, you know, championed and told the schools that we had experience in teletherapy because they didn't want to let us in um, originally. So because we had teletherapy experience from ESY, um, that's how I actually did my school placement via teletherapy in the school system. So thanks to her, that's how we were able to attain our clock hours. Awesome. Excellent. Good. I love hearing about like SLPs, like advocating and supporting each other, even though like technically that like literally is her role. Like not all of them are that, um, I don't want to say aggressive, like it's a bad thing, but not all of them are out there, you know, really advocating for their students to that degree to get them in their placements, no matter what pandemic or no. So I like hearing that a lot. All right, um, Alicia, why don't you start us off on our next topic about um, making yourself a competitive candidate because you've had such untraditional experiences, a lot more like teletherapy heavy. How do you feel like that might impact your resume and your marketability when you apply for jobs in the future? Um, as far as like teletherapy is concerned, I think it actually made me more marketable. I have basically I went through a process of trial and error of using it as a student. So like as time progresses, I'm more proficient in it and I can deliver it in a better capacity. I'm more creative with my materials that I come out with. Like, you know, I've started using platforms such as Boom Interactive to upload my own material. So I think that's how I made myself a little bit more competitive in that realm. Um, as far as like other opportunities, I just started engaging in stuff that would, um, I guess, get me towards what I want to do in the future. So I, like I told you guys earlier, I want my degree in, in neuroscience. I want to work with that population. So I was like, well, I know I'm going to be dealing with Parkinson patients. I'm not going to be dealing with cerebral palsy. I'm not going to be dealing with a little bit of dementia, autism. So I started to volunteer for organizations like United Cerebral Palsy of South Carolina. I started getting um, certification like my LSVT certification. I've got certified in, um, I think it's called epilepsy first aid. Got certification in that. And I, I'm looking at some other certifications, such as the preliminaries certified, I think I might be saying this, but I'm certified brain injury specialist. That's for students, right? <laughs> so just, you know, get myself, you know, acclimated to what I want to pursue in the future. So I would tell any student that, you know, although we're going through a pandemic, there are opportunities where you can better yourself in the process. You don't have to wait for something to happen. You can get out there and search for things that will, you know, help groom you and grow you more and be more proficient and more marketable in the profession. Um, Karis, what are your thoughts on making yourself a competitive candidate? Yeah, I really did have good clinical experiences, and I know that's not what the case is for every graduate student. So I feel like I didn't lose out on too many of those, but I think that I mean, it might have looked different than if I had done it five years ago. So fees, for example, were not happening in one of the hospitals I was in for several of the months because of the AGP protocols. Um, but Which, because of that, I... Sorry oh, to interrupt okay. you. 
the AGP. Let's go ahead and like yeah. spell that out for folks who might not be familiar with it. So that's the aerosol generating procedures, I believe. Okay. Um, and the, they changed a lot, to be honest. So sometimes it was like, if someone coughs, you have to close off a room for this amount of time or changed a lot. Um, but they considered a lot of the things that speech language pathologists do as aerosol generating procedures, as opposed to like PT or OT, where they might not have to do those as much. Um, yeah, so I didn't have some experiences, but but I still had other experiences. So I did a lot more, we call them pharyngeal function studies or modified barium swallows in, because we weren't doing fees. So I really got very um, like competent at doing that quicker, I think, than normal. Um, and I've explained that on CF applications and interviews. And then um, also, I think recognizing how to communicate best with patients and their family members on teletherapy, sometimes that's even easier because you have to have another person on the other side. So that's something that we are always supposed to do as speech therapists, but I really, I think, relied on um, and have that as a habit that I do. And even in the hospital, we had to figure out ways to go really far deeper into case history or to collaborate with doctors if there wasn't able to be family members present there because of the visiting protocols or things like that. Um, had to learn how to reach out to family members to figure out what that patient wanted in terms of their plan of care. Um, so I think that it might have changed in terms of my experiences, but I don't think that it made me less marketable at all. And it might require me to explain that to a hiring manager, but I'm confident of it. I can make them confident of it is my goal. <laughs> good, good. And Rachel, what have you found um, since you've been able to experience this, like going through the hiring process and um, answering questions from um, hiring managers and HR professionals, um, what's been your experience there? And then I thought if you wanted to touch on um, the idea of negotiating pay, um, now more than ever, SLPs entering the field might be feeling this feeling of, oh, I'm just so grateful to just get a job. I'll take whatever they're paying me. And they could be severely underpaying you. Just putting that out there as an idea. Because <laughs> I'm always advocating for the advancement of our profession and getting paid what we're worth. And we are worth quite a lot. Because we are very valued contributors uh, to the medical profession. So there's my little soapbox. I did it. I'm off of it now. <laughs> All right, Rachel. Um, what do you have to add to this discussion? Yeah, so I, um, you know felt a lot of anxiety going into the job search process because the cohort that I started grad school with, I saw, you know, when they graduated in May, many of them, um, you know, in their final one or two externships had built relationships, networked, and been kind of semi-promised positions that were no longer available <laughs> in May um, because the world was in a crisis. And so a lot of them had to wait several months before finding anything. Um, several of them who wanted a medical placement opted to work for a private practice, um, you know, which was totally different than what they had wanted, um, but it was what they could get. 
So um, when I started looking, you know, at the beginning of the fall, I kind of had their experiences in the back of my mind. Um, but I really think that the timing for me was fortunate because things were starting to open back up um, when I was looking. And I did not find a lack of positions available. Um, so that was, you know, promising as I was starting out. And then I really didn't, um, I really didn't encounter any, like, any, I guess, uncertainty about my experience from the people I was interviewing with. Everyone was understanding about the fact that, you know, our, my experience was different because of the impact of the pandemic. Um, now I did, so I think I mentioned in my intro that I majored in Spanish. Uh, I got my undergraduate degree in Spanish. I did a lot of work, um, that required bilingual skills before pursuing this degree. And I haven't used my Spanish in a long time, but coming into looking for a job, you know, I wanted to find opportunities where I could use that and put it, um, you know, put it to use and be compensated for it. So um, I actually only interviewed or only applied and interviewed for two positions. I was offered both. I chose, you know, the one that I'm in now. Um, one organization asked me during the interview if I had any bilingual skills. Um, and it had kind of a built-in system for if you do, there's a bump in pay. Um, the position I ended up accepting, nobody asked, but I um, inquired when with my HR interview about, um, you know, what the protocol is for that. Is there an increase in pay? And nobody really knew. <laughs> um, and so it was kind of a, a new thing. I was the guinea pig for my department. Um, there's actually an OT in my department who's also bilingual and has just been using these skills for the system for free for all these years. So um, the, you know, when I asked about it coming in, they figured out that there is a, an assessment um, through our system. If I pass it, I am eligible for, a, it turns out to be a 5% increase in pay, which I'm excited about. Um, and I took it and passed it, woohoo. <laughs> I just found out this week. So I'm pretty happy about that. And now that OT, I told her, I was like, you should totally do it. You know, your Spanish is awesome. And, you know, and honestly, it's something like it is a code in our, like it's a job code that really we should have if we're using, you know, bilingual skills in our practice, because um, that should be, it should be reflected that our skills have been assessed, we've passed, <laughs> and we're competent to use those. So um, that was kind of, that was really the only area that I had to advocate for myself. Um, you know, in my process, I got what I wanted from it. So yes, excellent. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Rachel. I love that. I think that's such an important aspect. Um, there may be a lot of people who are um, bilingual proficient or have been using Spanish um, in their practice for quite some time and maybe never thought that, that that's an added benefit to the hospital. That's an added skill. You're saving the hospital system or that facility the cost of getting an interpreter there. So, you know, I'm thinking... Like, we've got to advocate for ourselves. No one's just going to throw money at you. And if they are, I've got questions that need answers. <laughs> like, like, you really do. You have to go out there and ask for it. And it starts with knowing that, that you're worth it and that you are providing skilled treatments and skilled assessments and skilled skills, y'all. 
<laughs> All right. So we are just moving right along. I love this case. And so um, now we're going to talk about feelings. <laughs> Do you like how I opened that up? <laughs> Alicia's eyebrows just went to the ceiling. <laughs> She's like, wait, what? <laughs> All right. So my goal here is I want to talk about the toll that the uncertainty of COVID placed on graduate students in CS. All throughout our discussions, y'all have um, touched on it, mentioned it. Um, now let's really like unpack that. How has um, uncertainty going and the constant changing of regulations and, oh, now we're doing this. Oh, now this, now not that. Um, what, what has that been like for y'all? And the order that we're gonna take, we're gonna spell car with the first letter of your names. So, Karis, please begin. All right. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of emotions. Um, one, I think like a positive one is that this was one part of my life where I was assuming I was not going to make a lot of money. I was assuming where I was not going to have much control over my life and I was just going to do a program and do what other people told me to do. So in that sense, I know I was a lot better off than a lot of, um, peers who were not in graduate programs. Or, yeah, so that was a positive, um, but it definitely still meant that it was like flying by the seat of your pants. Um, I know that the way I actually first got in touch with Leanne was when um, end of spring, I think, I was looking forward into the future and thinking, okay, if we're going to continue only doing virtual clinical simulations, um, indefinitely is that what I want to be spending this one year dedicated of my life and money and time as a graduate student doing and will that give me the best foundation to be a clinician moving forward and obviously continue learning but graduate school is really important to have a foundation um so I was considering taking a semester off or a year off um or looking to see if there were other people who I could shadow to supplement the virtual, not even virtual, simulated experiences I was getting, which are very different than um, people. <laughs> so that was something that I explored a lot. And um, I guess also had to do the advocacy for it if figure it out on my own. And it wasn't like anybody had all the answers and that's nobody's fault because nobody knew the answers and we still don't really know. But um, I think contemplating that took a lot of like mental load. Um, and then I think the other big feeling is then when I did get clinical spots, I was very grateful for my supervisors who have taken me on because that is already you're doing a lot to take a student on as a supervisor. But during a pandemic when, you know, every day they're being told something different too. Um, and then they're also trying to support me. It's really a lot for them too. So I'm very, I was very grateful for those supervisors doing everything they were doing too. Alicia. Um, I think Kara said the word that actually stuck with me was grateful. So I am grateful. Although we were going through a pandemic, I'm grateful that I was able to adapt and still succeed in some capacity that I was able to 
get into the medical setting, although there were like a couple of days due to COVID issues where um where it was a little bit delayed, but being welcomed in and knowing that we haven't had that full hand hands-on experience that we would have in a traditional classroom setting, like them taking time with us, saying we know what you've been through, you know, it's okay, we're gonna teach you, like taking the time to groom us. And making us feel more confident in our abilities so that once we do step outside of their doors, that, you know, we can conquer and accomplish anything. So I'm just grateful, actually, for my placement coordinator. I'm grateful for my preceptor at my medical setting because I don't think without them, we would have made it this far. (laughs) So I'm very grateful for everything that I've been through. That's very inspiring, Alicia. I love your point of view. <laughs> I'm over here riding the struggle bus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Rachel, what do you have for us? I am also inspired by these ladies' positive mindset. I have been way more on the struggle bus. Um, so, you know, I, in hindsight, I am grateful <laughs> that my, I had a one and a half year old at the time um, COVID really started. And I'm very glad that my childcare provider at the time who was coming to our home in her sixties um, was still willing to come. <laughs> glad we were not in a daycare that got shut down. Um, that Also, uh, having a one and a half year old at home made my teletherapy experiences complicated because it's pretty impossible to have a productive teletherapy session, you know, with your toddler climbing on top of you. So um, that was an area that, you know, again, it was nobody's fault. Nobody knew what, you know, how to respond to the situation, but I um, had to kind of step up for myself with the university. and request a space to practice um, teletherapy in for my summer internship um, because I was being charged normal tuition by the university, normal departmental, you know, differential, um, and felt like I was being denied access to resources. Um, You know, we talked about how we kept hearing these are unprecedented times, (laughs) which they were. Um, And ultimately, I was able to work it out that I had a space, um, you know, I had PPE protocols to follow in the department, which of course I respected, um, got in, got out, did my teletherapy, but had a space, you know, that I could work in um, so that my child could stay at home because it didn't feel right to ask my child care provider to, you know, take her into her home with all that was going on with COVID. Um, So I'm grateful that all of that worked out. I had a lot of anxiety about my daughter starting childcare um, less than a month ago, or not childcare, daycare, (laughs) Um, with actually through a facility that's provided, or it's it's through the hospital system that I work for, um, primarily serves, you know, families who are employed by the hospital. Um, and so I'm grateful that that is a benefit to the position that I um, accepted. Um, but, you know, her starting 
daycare with strangers wearing masks was really scary for both of us. Um, and so I actually had a little panic attack about it at work <laughs> during, um, at, at a moment when I was supposed to be doing a teletherapy eval with a Spanish speaking family. So nobody else in the building could do this eval. I'm having a panic attack. And my supervisor was really great um, about instead of being like, come on, we got to get on this session, like pull yourself together. She, you you know, it took two minutes for me to hyperventilate and cry and get out what I needed to get off my chest. And then I got it together and, you know, signed on to the teletherapy session a few minutes late, but I got the eval done. And, um, you know, so I think one of the, we're going to get to the tips here in a minute, but one that I put for, um, you know, CF supervisors, and this goes for student supervisors as well, is to just check in with your student or your CF about how they're being affected personally so that you know what support they need, not only in their internship or their fellowship, but as an individual, as a person, because it means a lot. Yeah, that's a really great story. I'm so glad you shared that with us, Rachel. I think it's really important to acknowledge that like, we don't want to, and we don't like talking about it, but sometimes being able to express that emotion to to cry it out lets you process that emotion and then it lets you get back to being you and a professional in the workplace and that there really isn't anything wrong with doing that. And I love hearing that you have supervisors and colleagues at your place who recognize that, who allow you the space, who encourage it even because they know like that's what you needed. You needed the time to process that emotion and that emotion was intense. It needed you to cry it out. And then you could go about your day and be a successful <laughs> professional. And so I love that. It's so good to hear. I'm like, I'm really sorry that you had to cry. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I fought it for like 20 minutes beforehand and then it just was not gonna uh, be stifled. So <laughs> the, you know, but like you said, the fact that she allowed me that space to get it out, mm -hmm. I could move on. But yeah. Like that. I'm a chronic bottler and I'm learning that that is very, very bad. That is not healthy. <laughs> I'm a slow learner, so <laughs> it'll be okay. I'll get there eventually. <laughs> all right. So we've done an amazing job getting through all the topics um, that we thought would be really helpful for other um, graduate students and CFs to hear about. And so now we want to get into those specific tips. This is kind of like the free for all, like, hey, here's what I wish I had known, or here is something that is really important that I think others need to know about. So we're gonna start off with the tips for graduates, then do tips for CFs, and then hopefully we'll still have time um, to talk about our tips for supervisors and hiring managers. And um, Karis and Alicia and Rachel have been awesome to write all these out on some tip sheets. So we have that handout available for everyone on the show notes page on speechuncensored.com. So be sure to check those out and get your free downloads. I just, I feel like I'm selling something with that. It was very awkward. So, <laughs> all right, so we're gonna start with for graduates. And um, let's go back to our traditional alphabetical order and begin with you, Alicia. Um, what kind of tips would you like to give to other graduate students out there? Um, like um, I touched on a little bit earlier, try to obtain certifications that, you know, will be beneficial to you in the future. So that would be, 
for me, LSVT, PCBIS, autism certification, fee certification, anything like that that will help, you know, better you that you didn't have access to while going through this pandemic. So I will say that um, participate in programs such as STEP program that's offered by ASHA, um, some mentorship opportunities to help, you know, prepare you for um, for job interviews that you're about to you know, step out upon, you know, they, you have SLPs who are already in the field dealing with the pandemic. So they can barely, you know, tell you what, you know, the hospitals or the SNFs are looking for or how to, you know, better prepare yourself, you know, for their interviews. So I would say that, um, also like tap into organizations that help you, you know, filter your resume, you know, make it, you know, more appropriate to what you're trying to do. So. Those are my tips. Excellent. All right, Karis? Um, I think this is interesting because I think my tips now are different than what they would have been pre-pandemic. So um, I think one of them is just being able to self-reflect during the pandemic, not necessarily, I mean, sometimes it seems like there's been a lot of time, um, but other times it's just like out of necessity, you kind of have to like take a second and reflect. And even listening, I think to the other people on this panel, the kind of resilience and able to ability to take something out of a situation um, that could be difficult is really powerful. And so noticing that in yourself is important, but then also being able to market that is really important. Um, and that might, I mean, maybe it's not marketing, maybe as a graduate student, you just need to take that as like confidence to get through your next semester, to get through your week, to whatever it is. But then also when you're applying for CFs to be able to convey that in words, because um, I feel like we've all had a lot of experiences that if you tried to learn something from it, there's a lot to learn from it. Um, and then the other big one that I feel like we've all talked about is just that advocacy piece. and not having that be something that you want to start when you're a clinician. I mean, I know it's in our in our job descriptions to advocate for our patients. Um, I've always tried to have advocacy be a goal for my patients to advocate for their, themselves. So that's a functional task, but it's pretty hypocritical to not advocate then for myself as well, or just to be a good example of that. So um, I think trying to make that a habit and a lifestyle like right now, as opposed to waiting until you have a CF or until you have a job or until you have whatever you're waiting to get. Yeah, I love that. Important. I think of the time in graduate school as being like the training ground, right? Like now is the time to practice all these things, to practice advocacy, to practice confidence, even like see, try it on, see how it fits. You know, when I work with graduate students as interns, I always tell them like, I'm not here to tell you what to do and how to do it. I'm your safety net. This is your opportunity to, to implement all the things you've been learning about in class and in a, your other um, internships. Like, I'm here to catch you if you fall. Like, I'm going to make sure you don't hit the ground. That's my role. Like, it's time for you to spread your wings <laughs> and go explore and, like, learn those things. And that might be me being too pushy because I learn best by experiential learning. Like, I need to get in the driver's seat and drive to learn how to drive. Like I can take all the courses I need to about the theory of driving, but until I get behind the wheel and do it, I don't know how to drive. And that's what I always wanted my experiences with students to be is like, 
here's the wheel. Now take me to town. <laughs> like, let's go to a movie. Drive me to the movie theater. And I would be really surprised <laughs> by the hesitancy with which students would take the wheel or t- tap that gas pedal. And I'm like, pedal to the metal, sister. I haven't got all day. <laughs> There you go, crash course and um, being a supervisor. (laughs) All right, Rachel, what kind of tips do you have for graduate students? So for graduate students, um, one, that same uh, faculty champion (laughs) who helped me get my clinical hours always said something um, that stuck with me throughout graduate school, which was treat your externships as a semester-long interview. And that, I think, is excellent advice, especially during a pandemic, because um, of all the budgetary impacts, you know, limitations on positions being available. If you have a person, you know, if you are able to network in a system, you know, the semi-final externship, the CF position that I accepted, um, I was able to get, I think, because I did my final externship at a different, you know, part of the same system. I knew the rehab director through that. I, you know, applied for the position into this black hole <laughs> uh, online system, you know, that thousands or probably hundreds of applicants, um, you know, access. But I was able to walk down the hall, hand her my resume and say, hey, I submitted my application this weekend. Here's my resume. You know, I hope to hear from you soon. Um, and so just to have that personal connection, she was able to walk back down the hallway and talk to my supervisor about my performance and my internship, you know, to find out if I was someone she wanted to recommend to the supervisor who is now my boss. Um, And that's kind of how that all worked out. So I think that that treating every externship as a networking opportunity, a semester long interview is really good um, advice. Mm -hmm. I also think that's excellent advice. um, I'm going to talk about this in the CF section. Never mind. (laughs) Which is now. So go right ahead. Oh, okay, perfect. So, man, I have lots to say about tips for CFs. So what I was going to say is to really learn from those who have gone before you and pay it forward to those who come after you. So when I was in the interview process, I truly, so because of my modified plan of study, the timing of my like professional issues course was the semester that I was doing interviews. I think, you know, traditionally students have that course before they embark on the the job search process, but I truly had no idea what, um, or not, not no idea, but not a solid idea of what competitive pay rates were um, for the positions that I was applying for. And I, this is, you know, where an area that I was lucky to straddle two cohorts because um, the cohort that I came in with who graduated in May had already done this process and they were able to give me specific information about this is what I make, this is what my classmates make, you know, um, for people who did, who I did prereqs with, who ended up doing their graduate program in a nearby city, who had other classes, you know, I just got a lot of information that was really helpful um, about benefits too. Like, you know, do you make X amount per hour, but don't have benefits? If you do have benefits, here's a fair pay rate. 
Um, and so that was really helpful for me in negotiating my own situation. Um, so yeah. And then when it's, when people are asking you pay that forward, you know, be open about your own experience, um, and give information that can help others. I think, um, another thing for CS is utilizing all of your resources. So your, you have a clinical faculty, or I'm sorry, you have a CF mentor, um, supervisor, but that is one person, you know, who you should not be leaning on for absolutely everything. So I have found it really helpful to turn to my clinical faculty mentors from my university, you know, former graduate internship supervisors. If I have, you know, I know that they have experience with a certain population, I have a question, go to them. Um, and then throughout, that was what I wanted to say for graduate students was throughout your internships, ask questions, you know, to, to the SLPs that are supervising you, ask them about where they've worked, you know, what their experiences were in different settings, especially if you're someone, I know some folks come in knowing, you know, this is the patient population I want to work with. This is the setting I want to be in. I really didn't. Um, and so it was really helpful to hear from people who had worked in a school, who had worked in acute care, who had done private practice, you know, the pros and cons of different settings um, as you're making those decisions. So, oh, something else I wanted to say um, for the interview process that's specific to the pandemic. Um, it was really important to me to know, to ask the organizations that I was interviewing with how they responded um, to COVID-19 in terms of their staff. You know, how did they address patient and provider safety? What clinical changes did they make? You know, legal issues, licensure, the productivity, budgetary impact. Um, because, at, well, at the time that I started, you know, COVID cases were rising like crazy in January. And so, and the hospital system I worked for was really preparing for all hands on deck if it got bad. Um, and so I wanted to know, you know, back in March, did you shut down? Were you able to still get paid? <laughs> you know, what happened? Um, so that if there were to be another shutdown, I would be prepared um, for what to expect. So I think that's okay. I also want to say, <laughs> be mindful um, in your CF that you are joining a team that, um, you know, you're joining a team during a time in which service delivery and work culture um, likely look very different than they did pre-pandemic. And some of your existing patients, like the ones that you inherit on your caseload from other um, people, um, and also your colleagues and their and your patients' families may be mourning um, these changes. So, you know, I I work in a pretty small department that, you know, folks went out to lunch together and socialized a lot um, before the pandemic. And now everyone eats alone at our cubicles. Um, and so I can, I get the sense that they, you know, it, it's been a big change in the, just within the department, um, the work culture. And then, you know, the patients, and this is kind of across the board with medical settings, especially if someone and, you know, an adult, for example, who was, you know, a fully independent person who had a medical event during COVID, this is a really scary time to be hospitalized um, with limitations on visitors and like 
Karis alluded to just that like family getting the the patient history from family members with all the limitations, um, especially when there's cognitive linguistic deficits um, that can be really challenging. So that was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> that was good. Now I'm sure like so many people are listening and being like, oh, this is such good information. So thank you so much for sharing all of those. Sure. Um, we have more tips for supervisors and hiring managers, but we don't have any time to go over those right now, which is okay, because this episode was really built for graduate students and CFs, and I feel like that's what we covered today. So um, we'll have those extra tips that y'all created um, up on the website in the show notes. And um, I think that's everything for us. So again, Thank you all so much for joining me today to talk about your experiences, um, to inspire others and to talk about your experiences so that pe other people know how to navigate a lot of these same things. It's really helpful when we um, share our experiences so that we can get a sense of like what's going on. So thank you all so much. Thanks for thank having us. Thank you. And congratulations to all of the graduates or new CFs or graduate students out there. Celebrate yourselves, even if your graduation got canceled. <laughs> Excellent advice. You care. I mean, wow, wasn't that great? Ah, oh, so, so good. I hope none of that comes back to haunt me, actually, now that I reflect upon it. <laughs> Just kidding. I think it was all super useful, really helpful, and I hope that you are able to take the information and hopefully benefit from it and uh, grow. So that's the whole point of this podcast is to give you ideas and tools um, that are meant to benefit you and benefit the patients that we work with and work for. So big, big thanks to Sarah for just being amazing, for being herself and uh, coming on the podcast and sharing all those great tools. Um, go ahead and check out those show notes, all those resources and um, references that Sarah used are posted there so you can learn more about the information that we talked about. Um, also, I'd be delighted if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps other SLPs find the podcast and nourish and flourish right alongside of us. Big thanks to the team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for editing and doing some behind-the-scenes work to help facilitate this podcast. Really appreciate it. And a big, big thanks to the listeners. Uh, this podcast would be nothing without you. I am so grateful that you find value here. It's my goal to um, lift up this field by giving you resources that you can take and use in your everyday career. So if there's something you'd like to hear more of, and a topic you want to know about or a speaker that you want to hear from, reach out on my website, speechuncensored.com, and let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, nourish and flourish. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at SpeechTherapyPD.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. <laughs>